welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through candid conversations about cyber issues. Sponsored by Agency, with your host, Kath Nibbs. Welcome to this week's episode. This week I'm joined by Helen, who is... Welcome to this week's episode. This week I'm joined by one of my friends, Helen O'Quarter, and it's taken us a few months to actually get coordinated in our diaries to bring you this episode. Um, The episode is about adoption, it's about social media, and we talk a little bit about Helen's book um, that she wrote in 2012, which, um, you know, in all honesty, many more people ought to know about, ought to read around. Um, Helen brings you a lot of the trauma education in the book, And that's kind of what we talk about in this episode. Or should I say, I allow Helen to talk more so this week. So here comes a bit of being uh, human and also kind of what what I'm like really as a a person. So quite often after episodes, I am very much like you, like everybody else. I tend to sit and ruminate and reflect and I go into my default mode network and I think about what I could have done differently, what I could have said differently. And this has happened quite a lot on the podcast. Um, So what I'm basically doing is going, okay, hands up. I have been guilty of being um, massively um, keen, passionate to bring you this podcast, but at the expense of sometimes talking too much and I think talking too much instead of who I'm talking with um, also known as conversation hog Um, and some of this I think is down to the fact that for my job um, being a therapist I do sit with clients and I don't do a lot of the talking Um, you know that's not what therapy is so given the chance to talk to somebody and and have a really in-depth conversation. I do get overly animated, uh, excited, emotionally dysregulated. There's lots and lots of phrases for it. Um, And basically, I'm a talker. I'm known for talking. I kind of joke about it sometimes. But this is really a bit of a reflection on um, what, what happened over the last couple of weeks is I decided to interview somebody so this is coming for next week I decided to interview somebody that's going to tell a story and this is where I'm going to say it's a bit of a plot twist coming for the podcast um what I have been doing is bringing you lots and lots of information and this this is the information that I sit with and I I think that you all ought to know and then I thought about some uh feedback that I got from somebody who said you know um uh, the thing is, Kath, is you're speaking to academics, you're speaking to um, people who are really in the know. And what about the people who it really affects? Now, here's the thing. I can't bring my clients to have the conversations with you. Um, and that's that's essentially why I'm going to be writing um, my book in the way that I am. And even with that, I've had a bit of a plot twist and change in what I'm doing. Um, so this is just to say, this episode is really, really interesting with Helen. Um, but please do bear with me. Um, I'm aware that the, the format of the podcast will still follow the same uh, in terms of uh, the, the way that it begins and so on. But I think as I go into season two, because we are heading up towards a year now, that what I am going to do is I'm going to start take, talking to um, people who are like my clients. So if you have a story to tell, and it's about how um, cyberspace uh, technology has had an effect on you, whether that be positive or negative, please do get in touch. Um, 
I'd like to get some more real person stories out there. So I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to be doing lots and lots of things such as writing a book, doing a PhD, working with clients, teaching. I get to talk about this stuff quite a lot um, in terms of my, my life. Um, and the only way I can bring it to the podcast is if I have people who really have stories. Um, so that's, that's what I'm asking for, basically. Um, again, uh, uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes, uh, Anchor, whatever it is, or whatever platform you've managed to get hold of this from, um, please do leave a review. Please, uh, you know, please share this around. Please do subscribe. Um, I think that the meat and bones of what I'm going to start bringing you is going to be much more um, affluent in terms of how you can learn from it. Um, as always, have a great week, but don't forget to head on over to Patreon uh, to get more inside information where, yes, I will be talking, but there may be more academic um, and reflective stuff. Um, so have a great week, people, and see you next time. Welcome to Cyber Synapse. This week, I'm joined by Helen O'Quarter. I nearly fumbled your name then. Um, so uh, we're off to a good start. Um, I've, I've invited Helen on because not only is she a friend, uh, um, Helen is a, a trainer, a coach, an author, an adoptive parent, and has written a book that we're, we're kind of going to talk a little bit about today called Bubble Wrap Children. Um, so this is how social networking is transforming the face of 21st century adoption. Uh, now, the reason you're here, Helen, Helen, who's holding up the book for those on, on uh, not on uh, YouTube, um, yeah, basically, I've, I've been writing uh, my book, and one of, the, one of the chapters I've got to, I was writing a little bit around um, certain posts that appear on, for example, let's go with Facebook, because it is the, the most popular platform, um, and some of the posts have been um, regarding long-lost family members that might be I'm looking for my granddad or um and I've, I've seen quite a lot of these around the moment because of the the first world war and and there's a lot of nostalgia but also I was sat and as I've been writing my book um I kind of thought well what what about if this was a post where this was um a family member looking for let's take for example their child who was put up for adoption and what they're now trying to do is actually seek out that child. So how about we start, Helen, with why would, why would somebody do that? What's underneath this kind of behaviour? Um, because I'm, I'm going to bow to your expertise in this area. Well, I think we can look at it from the two perspectives, the adults looking and the children looking. And let's, let's take them separately. The adults looking, when... Members of a, when, when birth family, particularly birth mums, um, and yes, to some extent birth dads, but also <coughs> cousins, siblings, we find mm. quite a lot, who have been involved with a child who has been removed by social workers, then the courts have deemed that for whatever reason, the birth family, the birth parents are not able to look after that child. And it's and that child will have experienced maltreatment, neglect. And it's deemed that the parents are not able to look after the child in the foreseeable future in the timescales of the child. Now, you can argue the bar is set high, low, but the child is removed. And I think often birth parents don't fully understand why, which is part of the, the challenge for the birth family yeah. anyway. Yeah. And then the child is removed and that's it. 
they they just what have they got they are left with this massive grief massive grief they've lost a child mm -hmm. and yeah. very often this not understanding why feeling that it's not fair it's not this it's not that sometimes they get promises made about oh well you know you'll get photographs and and, and it's all just frankly a mess and there's a lack of support for birth mothers that have had that is is woefully inadequate now there is a bit now there's the pause project there's a few things that yeah. are, are really good but there is this hole inside a birth mother who's had a child removed because of adoption or mm -hmm. being fostered and one of the ways that they will then fill that hole is by getting pregnant again and people go oh well why do they keep doing it and it's like duh they've got this massive hole this grief that needs to be filled yeah yeah so birth family are you know potentially going to look online and i mentioned the the siblings if you think of older siblings who looked after younger kids and maybe the mm -hmm. siblings stayed on maybe they went into foster care but they remember little johnny little tim and they they cared for them they nurtured them and of course when they get older they are going to be curious about what happened and yeah. that curiosity is going to impact everybody so it's not just going to be the birth family but the children who have been removed and placed for adoption they're going to be curious what did happen to my birth mum what happened to my siblings yeah and there may be some level of contact with birth parents and birth family there might be some letterbox sometimes there is some actual face-to-face -face or more detail and it might be face-to-face -face maybe with grandparents or aunts and uncles but the child is left with well you know what happened and why and or oh. and often the children are not told the full story so mm -hmm. they're told, oh you know mummy couldn't look after you because she wasn't well and then they go hang on my current adoptive mum can't look after me because she's got flu well you know what's the difference what's yeah. and that lack of understanding and particularly not sharing the details of the real underlying reasons that the children were removed there's often a fear and there's a saccharine oh well she just couldn't look after you as opposed to she couldn't look after any child she was given this help that help and these are the experiences you had you lay in that cot for 24 hours because yeah. intrinsically the child knows it you know it's in the body yeah yeah you know Bessel van der Kolk the body keeps the score and often these kids are given a saccharine version so it doesn't match their somatic mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. and that lack of that mismatch between the story they're told and their somatic body experience leaves so many questions that then they might go online and start looking, particularly in the teenage years, you know, in the natural yeah. reviewing time, etc. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's that's my experience of working with um, uh, adoptive children in therapy is, is quite often the conversation about Facebook arises because it might be that the child has messaged the parent or 
as as has happened on a number of occasions the parent has actually messaged the child and this is this is now um i think in terms of how let's do, I'm, I'm just thinking messenger in particular here how that's actually changed over the last couple of years is you used to get your inbox messages from people that you're friends and then you would get other well nowadays you get message requests and because of the app you can you can actually have this huge impact so i'm just thinking that actually we might it might be good to talk about kind of the trauma of um, what what happens that moment you open that message and it's from a, a birth fem family member or um, and I know we could talk about trauma all day long because that is kind of our favourite subject to talk about. So um, oh, yeah, it's devastating. And and let's just think, you know, you need a date of birth and you need a name. That's all you do. And then you can mm. find somebody easy peasy. And I think a lot of adoptive parents are kidding themselves when they think, you know, oh, well, it's just about setting, you know, privacy settings. Dream on. It's, mm -hmm. it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, my view is this will happen. And therefore, as adoptive parents, you have to future proof your child. So you've got to take a very robust view and you know, I mean, if families can work with somebody like you and other people who are trauma-informed, that is fantastic. But what happens, I mean, as you say, a child may be curious and they may also be terrified. Mm. And I can think of a, of a child I know who whose biggest fear was that she'd bump into birth mum on the street. Mm -hmm. And then... In her first, in her start of her second term at university, she gets a message, Facebook message saying, hi, remember me, you've been told lies about me. That, that arrived in her bedroom at university and it absolutely blew her mind. Yeah. And this particular teen, young adult, you know, disappeared into a vodka bottle and stayed there for a long time and i i have story after story after yeah. story where that has occurred and it has been deeply unsettling for everyone and mm -hmm. sometimes mm. The kids will share it with adoptive parents sometimes they won't the potential for the adult who gets in contact to be a toxic parent of various sorts including the pedophiles mm. who obviously i mean it's a brilliant way you know remember me we had a lot of fun i used to take you out give you ice creams you know hey let's just hook up and because that would be really nice da, 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 da. and then they hook up and you know imagination yeah, yeah. well that, i mean that's trauma bonds in in a nutshell isn't it really Absolutely. um I, i'm not gonna go too too in depth on on trauma bonds here um i i, I am I, just i know you're not and it is one of the things that is significant in this instance. So yeah. we're going to park it because I know you talk about it, but it is one of the things that is so significant. Yeah, I am just going to make a note of uh, if we get time to come back to that, because um, I was just thinking about, OK, so that the trauma impact is, I mean, it's the reason why I came up with the phrase cyber trauma. Any trauma that comes from cyberspace, and this would, this would be a significant bombshell wouldn't it when That's you're it. least expecting it to get a message that says oh by the way um yeah. absolutely so. and, and sorry just to interrupt. and it can be equally you know challenging for the birth parent if they receive something from a child yeah. so you know it works both ways and even if one of them 
makes the initial contact, which they might do because they're fed up, you know, they're a bit cross with their birth, you know, child might do it because they're fed up with, with their adopted parent that day, mm. but then they regret it. Similarly, birth parent does it, you know, maybe with half a bottle of vodka inside them and then regrets it. Once it's out there, it, yeah. there is no pulling back as, as we know. So yeah, it's, yeah. So regrets yeah. and pulling, it's, it's such a complex process. It's, it's not a simple yeah. one pack. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, as I was just thinking then, this isn't ripples. Uh, well, there's, this is a boulder in the pond because then you've also got the adoptive family that are affected by it and, and, and it just ripples outwards. Like, um, I, I think ripples too small a word. Mm. Um, it's, it's a storm. Yeah. Um, you know I mean? you know possibly sometimes but it's a storm and if you think of mm -hmm. i don't know the both on you know scale of what's happening with seeds and actually this is a gale force storm that hits and you know for all the sailors listening you know if you know you've got gale force winds coming you batten down the hatches you put your oil skins on you secure your lifeline you reduce the sails yeah. you head in the right direction and you plan for it yeah you're yeah. not sailing along with your spinnaker and and everything's great and bang because if you do that the boat keels over and it creates a massive challenge and if you know it's going to happen you prepare so my concept of of future proofing children i think that's so important so the 100 percent truth telling in an age-appropriate way throughout a child's yeah. life child teen adult's life is so important because that then helps you overcome mm -hmm. those sorts of things okay i've not used that metaphor before it's good one thank you I'm, that was that was amazing i i love i love okay. metaphors uh they're so good for working with kind of the the abstract aren't they um mm. so yeah so my my next question would be what what yeah what do parents need to do what do um yeah wh where do we go with this what do adoptive parents need to know so pretty much um this is going to actually tie in with um you've got another book coming out as well haven't you um so there is something about becoming trauma informed oh all adopt all adoptive children have trauma that's that's just a given um but this is about uh we're sticking more so here with the social media side of things so what what do parents need to know in terms of uh, future proofing in terms of you know the kind of things that can happen um, in in social networking well I think prospective adopters adopters I think this also applies to foster care long-term particularly long-term foster care those kids who are never going to go back home but aren't going to be adopted mm. they you know it's the same kids it's just a different legal status those parents need to think about what is going on inside the child, not the presenting behavior, which might be running around or being violent or whatever. What's going on? What's the internal working model of that child? Yeah. What's actually happening inside and start realizing that inside there is probably a very terrified child who doesn't have the ability to regulate, et cetera, et cetera. For parents to realize that their child, even after a number of years of great parenting, is still going to have 
that legacy of trauma and there will be fragments of it mm-hmm. I, I think of it as shrapnel and I, I use the shrapnel metaphor quite a lot and different things will get triggered at different times yeah. so for parents to have that mindset always look through the lens of trauma educate themselves about trauma educate themselves about how a child might be reacting about therapeutic reparenting so it's parenting the child in front of you not the chronological age yeah. the developmental age which moves around, which <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's not easy and recognizing that in and the language that i use they are parenting tim a traumatized infant maltreated not sandy a securely attached normally developing youngster and they have to have that massive mindset shift mm-hmm. and say this is a traumatized child therefore i must do things differently yeah. in addition to that they need to think about well what has happened to the child before now you're going to get some of that in the records and there's going to be a whole heap of stuff that nobody knew what was it like for tim to lie in that cot being ignored or having you know boyfriends shouting or walloping or 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 and there's lots of those scenarios so actually working with trauma-informed therapists wherever possible well i mean if you haven't got a trauma-informed therapist you know <laughs> i mean you yeah. know what is the point because you have to look at it from that perspective yeah. And recognizing that you've got to fill in the gaps that they missed and undo the damage. All of those things is part of it. And then you, you just start doing that from when the child arrives so that when, when, and it is a when, there is contact from birth family, you've started doing the future proofing. I think the other thing for people to think about is instead of waiting for that contact at some point via Facebook or wherever else in the future, what if you started thinking about having some kind of contact earlier? Now, ideally facilitated contact because everybody needs to know where they stand because it's pretty terrifying for the kid. It's pretty terrifying for the adoptive parent and it's certainly terrifying for the birth parents. So having that facilitated and I have experienced that, you know, having contact with birth mum when my kids were in their early teens and it was facilitated and it made a big difference. Did it help future proof them? Yes, of course. Mm. So it's the sort of thing to think about and think, Rather than have this massive fallout, you know, this, you know, gale force thing happening mm-hmm. when the child is, I don't know, 15, 16, and it oft, so often seems to, the contact seems to be around time of GCSEs. The number of kids I know who ended up not taking exams have completely blown their GCSEs because of contact from birth family who maybe thought, well, they're 16 now, so it's all right. And no, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. If that contact had happened at maybe 11 or, you know, it might be 7 or 9 or 11 and happening again and again, then it wouldn't be such a big problem mm-hmm. at 16. Yeah. So again, this concept of future-proofing, does it cause, you know, if they have contact, does it disrupt? Yeah, sure. But it's how big a disruption and over what period of time. I mean, if you imagine, you know, 
taking a bottle of Coke and shaking it, how do you want to unscrew it? Do you want to unscrew it like a or do you want to unscrew it and have everywhere and it's covered literally in brown stuff yes you have to think about that and that's again i I think linking to and bless you for talking about my my next book which is is so you wanted to adopt is you have to prepare for that and you have to yeah why this is so important and why you have to be so much more than a in inverse commas normal parents why the preparation to be an adopter needs to be there and and i'm pretty hard line on adopter preparation um and Mm -hmm. certainly the the new book is looking at this sort of psychological and emotional stuff and it's suitable for people already existing adopters and it's you know i'm taking that coaching view and the trauma view and kind of winding it all together but it's why it's so much more is needed as an adopted parent and as a, yes. as a foster parent. Yeah, I'm, I mean, uh, the thing I was going to say, it's an absolute godsend for for um, for children who are in the looked after system uh, in terms of how it can help professionals as well. Um, I, and I, I do love your onomatopoeic kind of push. That's the kind of stuff I do. I, I do that. Lots of sound effects and so on. Um, that's actually how I talk to parents about the Coke bottle. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, because uh, and and also with the sound effects, so that's why I just chortled when we're talking. <laughs> oh, I'm um, sorry if I've stolen your metaphor. No, no, no. It's no, share and share alike. It's it's, it's right. good to get stuff like this out there. Um, so actually, now people listening to this can now use the same metaphor. Um, yes, absolutely. That was so. Yeah, I'm just thinking actually when you were talking about kind of um, the supported contact, you, you kind of used in. Um, so I'm going to do a psychology phrase here. Um, Vygotskyan, which is called scaffolding which is where you provide the scaffold and you support and everybody can move to their, um, it's called zones of proximal development. So they're taken to the point where they can then do it on their own. Um, But as, as you were talking, Helen, I was thinking, right. So the, the other issue that crops up, particularly for the teens and i'm thinking around that um it's usually adolescence it's usually about the rebellious phase and the the um, separation from the family so uh in terms of family of origin this would be a child causing havoc and leaving home um and i was thinking particularly about social media that this is where i've worked with a number of adolescents who have been adopted and what they've done is they've gone to visit their family of origin, taken loads and loads of pictures on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, put them all up uh, in order to piss off the adoptive parents, and then gone back to the adoptive parents, taken lots and lots of pictures, um, you know, and it's using phrases like, oh, best day ever, this is the best family, this is my real mum, this is my best mum, all that kind of language and, and how it can, yeah, how it can really cause a bigger storm through pissing people off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's knife in the heart stuff because however much as an adoptive parent, you understand that they they have a first family. And if you don't accept that your children have had other families other than you, you shouldn't be an adopter. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Because it's so important in terms of identity. And yes, they might want to do that. What then happens is all their school friends see it. And they go into school and people start making comments and you know how teens behave and it starts often it can get really vicious mm-hmm. and mm. 
and both for the for the kids and also for the for the adoptive parents their friends start seeing it and people possibly well-intentioned sometimes not make comments start saying things and 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 you get the sort of the oh well i'm surprised they're saying that they really should be grateful because you've rescued them and it's like these kids never asked to be adopted in the first place you know mm-hmm. absolute lack of understanding from the rest of the world and as we know once it's out on side you know once it's out in the cyber world you can't take it back you yeah. absolutely can't take it back and i think one of the other things you know we talked about if somebody sees a, a, a post on on saying oh can you help me find my long lost family mm-hmm. member there is all of this stuff going on and sometimes the parents from who these children have been removed are vicious dangerous um there are some subgroups for whom they own that child that is my child and nobody has the right to take it away and i'm going to find that child and they're going to be back with me come what may and i'm going to do to them whatever i choose and this concept that the child is the property of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the adults yeah and that then once that gets online then you're actually at a serious at risk because it's quite easy to find out where the adopters live and i know people for whom this has happened i know yeah. people who yeah. have house i know people who've had to change their car i know people who've been driving and realized they've been followed who've driven into a police station because of the threat that they are under so this is not this is not just about the emotional challenge yeah. it's about people who can be for whatever reason and you can argue mental health you can argue society you, it doesn't matter what the argument is this is a child protection issue absolutely mm-hmm. child protection issue not just in that extreme case but in the emotional side i know kids who've had this sort of contact and how they responded self-harming or they've increased yeah a level of self-harming or they've taken overdoses i know of a a kid who got on a train i think he was 14 at the time got on a train to go and meet up with a member of the birth family that was 200 miles away and he had a knife now what was he going to do with the knife what i don't know Mm. that's the sort of thing that is happening with 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 more i mean just so much regularity it's it's it really is quite terrifying yeah uh, well this this is why i mean i'm not uh, as i was saying to you earlier the book is just so so big <laughs> that what i'm having to do is just do really kind of a, a whistle stop tour on a lot of things and i do say this when i'm talking about my training that actually this is a huge part not just the, uh, for adoptive uh, children this is a huge part about what social media is that social services need education in um you know and hopefully by the time my book comes out those are the professionals um that should be reading it that need to read it and if they don't um i'm probably going to go around uh, touting off at people saying you know it's because this is the kind of stuff that people are unaware about and i find regularly when i have safeguarding issues if i phone social services up they just don't get it 
um, which is terribly frustrating because, you know, I have the privileged position of being educated about cyberspace as I am. And then I'm sitting with the professionals, educating them at the safeguarding meetings. I'm educate, and, and this has gone all the way up to um, huge levels of the police don't get this either. So there's I, something about where, where I, we need to go with this. I think it's that thing about understanding why this is important. Mm. And when my belief, and it's the Simon Siniak, um, you know, start with why. If people understand yep. why this is important, they will work out their own what and how. And I think you're right, it applies to social services, police, politicians, the decision makers, mm -hmm. governmental, and the press. I mean, don't let's not even go <laughs> that particular route. Because it, it, it is this sort of idea and, and I've certainly had discussions you know both press and politicians oh you know there there is a right to freedom of speech there is a right that oh things like you know members of the press can can go and listen to information about young children and and mm -hmm. and not understanding how that can be jigsawed together you know and and suddenly a child who was removed and protection has been put in place with just a few comments in the press or a bit of tweeting suddenly it's that child's safety is challenged and when for example um you've had children who've been in an environment let's say when when a when one parent has killed another and we know you know that happened yeah, yeah. um you know, those children are removed what then happens further down the line? How do we protect these children for the rest of their lives, both externally and how do we build in them the resilience inside so that they are not completely thrown off? So it goes back, I guess, to the, the, metaphor, the sailing metaphor earlier. Yeah. How strong is that gale force wind? What do we need to do to help them pro be protected for a long time well, yeah i mean i was just thinking then uh, and this will be another social media slant on it so many many moons ago uh, i'm even going to bring up something that is so old i'm going to talk about microfoil for a second that actually if you wanted to find something that had appeared in the media for example going with your um uh, the murder example there um or would we get would we call it homicide in this country anyway um so the the actual um death of a parent in that particular way or, or a parent who'd committed a crime and, and that's why the children are removed um that would have appeared in the, the newspapers and then the newspapers would have decayed and, and it would have been kept on microfoil so you would have had to go to an old-fashioned library search through all the microfoil um but now you can literally go to a uh, newspaper website a media outlet you can type it in and you can also now, this has just popped in my head, go to the DNA Ancestry kind of site. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and kids being contacted via the DNA search stuff. Yes, absolutely. I mean, all of, all of these things are absolutely true. And starting to understand why this is a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I have a bit of a theory that, you know, things like, you know, the setting of Facebook and whatever was by very young, mainly men, um, 
whose emotional intelligence may not have been as good as we might have liked it to be. And they've set up a whole load of stuff without realizing the ramifications. Yeah. And then the ramifications come along and people have a tendency to go, well, yeah, we did that, but you know, well, I, you know, it's not such a big deal. Rather than going, do you know what? We really screwed this up. Uh, yeah. We now realize what a big deal this is and how can we repair some of that damage? How can we approach this from a psychologically, emotionally healthy perspective? Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm actually doing a, a chapter for a book about um, compassion in cyberspace. And actually, this is one of the things that, you know, I, I, I am talking about is also kind of people saying, yeah, we, we fucked this one up. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, look at look what we did. So, for example, let's say let's name him. Right. So Mark Zuckerberg set up a brilliant platform for social media. Great idea. But actually what, what you're talking about here are the bigger consequences about to be perfectly honest, things that he would not have been involved in. Absolutely. And let's think, you know, what was the purpose mm. of setting up Facebook? Yeah. It was data to use it as, you know, as, as mm -hmm. politely as possible. That was the objective. It, it wasn't, you know, yeah. it wasn't what it has grown into and, and all those other things. Mm -hmm. So I think there is that side of it. I think the other thing is that what people do, I mean, as we know, you know, on cyberspace, they would never do face-to-face. -face. And again, that yeah. comes down to educating and linking it back with teens. We know their prefrontal cortex goes offline. We know they are dysfunctional. You know, they're toddlers with wheels kind of thing. Yeah. And how do we help them do that? How do we help them be reflective? Well, there's an awful lot of adults out there who don't reflect. You know, you've only got to cut somebody up or be cut up and road rage and all of those things. They're the, the lack of ability to self-regulate and keep calm in different situations. You know, if this, is, this is a complex mapping through. It's not one simple solution. It's yeah. systemic. And we have, I think we have to think of it from the perspective of systems thinking. And we don't have systems mm -hmm. thinking. We have a series of heaps. You know, there's a whole heap of stuff here and a whole heap of stuff there and a whole heap there. Yeah. And it is not interconnected in a way that makes it digestible for anyone who is using it, thinking about it. Um, Do you know, this is why my book is so bloody big. Um, in, in simple terms, this is what I start. I set out to do pretty much like, like, like when we talked earlier, it, I set out to do a book about this is what cyber trauma is. This is what children do. Oh my goodness. This is why this is what this is. This is what this is. And it's actually a multifactorial book with each chapter relating back to each other's chapter because so far we've actually covered, um, cyberbullying, we've covered stalking, we've covered, um, uh, it, it yeah kind of violation of privacy uh, this is this is such a big big topic in terms of uh, actually this is going to be titled something about adoptive parenting uh, and here we are we've covered so many other cyber issues and you can't have one separated without Absol business. absolutely it is the ramifications mm -hmm. of actions and the i suppose we have the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns you know quoting yeah. donald rumsfeld i think it was and and actually people just not having any idea yeah and doing things in 
ignorance, innocence, thinking they may be doing the right thing, but just not knowing what then happens longer term. And yes, you know, and I, I completely understand why your book, you know, does like this is the way it does you know i mean my you know the bubble wrap children was sixty thousand words and the the recent one is thirty thousand words and i had to stop myself from from doing more um because there are so many and so what well because of that and and so what and so what and that question so what just brings out more and more and more and the if then so what if then so what and and something that might work for somebody you know a child or an adult who's emotionally literate and has the ability to self-regulate could utterly damage destroy somebody who's emotionally illiterate with poor self-regulation skills and often the decisions are being made by people with sometimes with good emotional skills and sometimes not, but they're making them on the basis that, well, other people are the same as me. So because of that, you know, it it just maps across straight across without realizing that there's the filters of people's belief systems, their identity, what they do, that all has to be taken into account. And it's, you know, it's complex and it, I don't think there are any easy answers. And we have to drill down into that why. Why and, and start asking the why questions for what and for whom rather than just dealing with the superficial. So again, it's like children, you don't deal with the super, superficial behaviour, the presenting behaviour. You've got to drill down into what is going on underneath inside that child yeah and observe listen be curious ask questions open questions leave pauses so that the child can come in whereas an awful lot of parents just go and make massive presumptions Mm -hmm. and they don't stop and they don't listen yeah and we don't train people how to be parents you know i'm a doctor i've got the equivalent of a certificate that says i'm allowed to be a parent other people can pop around the back of, you know, McDonald's or wherever <laughs> else and whoops. Oh, hey, nine months later, who knew? Yes, I actually saw, a, I saw, I'm just going to do the positives of social media. I saw a, um, what was it, a, a, a meme of uh, somebody taking a picture of a Jurex cabinet in, I think it might have been America. And it said underneath, uh, accidents do not happen. Babies just do, you know, they're not, they, they might be miracles, but they're not accidents. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah, because that's what I say to, uh, when I used to do the sex education. I used to say, do you know the biggest side effect of having sex is? And the kids would be like, uh, oh, is it an STI? Is it? And I went, well, yeah, it's, uh, it's a baby. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not something that they all go into thinking about. But um, yeah, and there is also something here about because of your experience, uh, and I'm just aware of the time and um, kind of us coming to a bit of a close, um, that actually... M- I mean, my book isn't going to cover half of half of the stuff that it needs to. But what I am doing in it is I am directing people. So I would I'm going to put in the link to uh, Bubble Wrap Children at the moment. Can people pre-order your new one yet? Uh, not yet, but they, right. they it, it's 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 not <clears throat> it's close to that stage, but we're not quite there. But they will be able to pre-order. Right. Yeah, 
and bubble wrap children i mean obviously it's on amazon and bookshops and and all the rest of it and it, i mean it came out in 2012 and yes. it, it well it got the the uh, the Times front page headline was Facebook threat to adopted children. So it was, you know, it was picked up. Um, it'd be lovely if the next one is, but I, I suspect not as much. But this is, this, I mean, in a way it's quite sad in that it hasn't lost any of the, con I mean, the content nope. Is, nope. is evergreen um, because yep. it does look at the underlying issues and, and I think stepping into the shoes of the birth parents, stepping into the shoes of the child, stepping into the shoes of mm. the adopters, stepping into the shoes of the social workers who either removed the child or were involved in the decision. Because all of these things, I, I believe, and okay, you know, I'm, I'm an NLP coach and trainer and all of, you know, all those other things that I, I have that have enabled me to get to this place and you know yeah. it's some, some tough stuff being able to see things from somebody else's perspective that's where wisdom comes yes. and that is so important mm -hmm. and i think for any adopted parent for any foster parent for social workers for anyone thinking about doing anything if you just stop for a moment and reflect and say how might this be taken by this email or this text or this tweet by somebody else? How will they read it? Will they read it as something that's informative or will they take it as a challenge? Will they and just start exploring outside of your own head? Because one of the things that's quite a surprise, I know when I first came across, across it, it was like, wow, other people don't think like me. I mean, really, seriously, yeah. I, I, and I don't mean that other people have different beliefs to me. Other people have different experiences. Somebody else sees where I might see an opportunity. They might see a challenge. Mm -hmm. I might see a challenge where they mm -hmm. see something quite safe. I might think, oh, that's exciting. They might think dangerous. So all of those things, and particularly when you put in the, the lens and the filter of trauma and start thinking about neuroception and whether you feel safe in your own body. If you don't feel safe in your own body, you won't feel safe anywhere. Yeah. And an awful lot. I mean, I would say pretty much, you know, I haven't got any stats, but you know, 99% of children who've been maltreated in infancy will not have that ability to feel safe in their body. Yeah. And yeah. we have to help them. Yeah. get to that point so yeah i actually replied to somebody on facebook this this very morning actually somebody said how do i explain co-regulation and working with parrot and i actually gave the metaphor of quite often children are like thermometers and it's our job to help them become thermostats so well, uh, yeah absolutely and you know the last three chapters of my new book actually look at that and they look at the autonomic nervous system yeah. and and the detail, because I think we're very lucky that, you know, you and I keep ahead of, you know, and we go on courses and all these sorts of things. And we, we've got a level of understanding about the autonomic nervous system through the polyvagal theory and all those things that mm. actually empower us and will help us ourselves and also educate others on why things are how they are. And if I'd had that 25 years ago when my kids came, yeah. why would I do it different? Yeah. I would do it differently. I would have knowledge, skills, 
And would the outcome be better for my kids? Sure. You know, I still did the best I could and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not coming from a place of regret. But I suppose for, for me, I go back to, I provide people what I wished I'd had at the various stages on my own journey. So I'm that, that 2020 vision of hindsight vision is so useful. And yeah. if only we had it for everything. <laughs> um, absolutely. And I think we're so privileged that you, you've taken the time to, re- to write this book. And I think it is going to have such an impact on so many people. So um, thank you. Yeah. What, what I wanted to say was um, for those who want to understand a little bit more about the polyvagal theory, go back and listen to the podcast that I did with uh, Matt Hansen, because we actually talked about um, heart rate variability and why breathing is so important. And also, read Helen's book. When mine comes out, mine will cover the polyvagal theory in a um, slightly different way, but it's all, this is the stuff that we need to really, really be bringing to the forefront. Um, so I just wanted to thank you very much for your time. And, and you're welcome. And you've got, you've got videos. Um, I've got stuff on YouTube. Um, yeah, and I'm going to put some of those in the link. Yeah. yeah. And the, the fat parents has got things and I, you know, I'm a bit rubbish at keeping it up to date and whatever, particularly when I get, I get very, <laughs> very tunnel vision when i'm writing yeah um, but there, there's stuff there i mean you've got stuff other people have got things polyvagal is i think it is it is the answer to everything um, i i mention it in nearly every podcast <laughs> it's, it, it's just, it blew my mind when i first came across it and i've certainly traveled the world to understand it more yeah. and and the other thing i think we we, we we're both lucky in that we've been exposed to various different methods of working. And we know that there are all sorts of methodologies out there that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the talk and, and talking therapies, not generally one of them, mm-hmm. um, if, you know, broad brush. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff that works so much better. Well, I mean, that's why I've got this fantastic uh, building here where, uh, you know, it is a trauma clinic and we we roll around, jumping around, and it's all about um, tapping into the nervous system and the brain and uh, pretty much like the MBIT, which actually, let's do a podcast on that one. um, (laughs) And yes, and integrated eye movement therapy. I mean, I have, because I'm a coach, I'm very privileged that I, I can practice this, I mean, practice use these mm-hmm. tools with my coaching clients and they are gobsmacked. They are blown away by how effective these tools are. And l- lots of them, they've done years of therapy and then they go, we've just cleared this in, in what, you know, 15 minutes, half an hour. And you go, yeah. And I think it's that, that understanding that precision tools are available. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with clients, they start feeling guilty that they've not, cleared it before but they only had a rusty screwdriver and a mole wrench and suddenly you've got a a really precision kind of f1 style garage that you can use to do the 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 work and it's it's fantastic this stuff that's available now We're we're very privileged Yes. Um, and, and again, thank you. Thank you for uh, your time. Um, I will talk to you after this one. Um, but I think what we did say is we'd, we'd try and curb it before your next appointment. So I'm going to kind of come to a close now and, and just say thank you very much for your time, Helen. Oh, and thank you. And I think your work is great too. So big fan. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you.
Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through candid conversations about cyber issues. Sponsored by Agency, with your host, Kath Nibbs. Welcome to this week's episode. Since we recorded this episode, uh, there had been uh, the Jacksonville shooting, and one of the things I want... Welcome to this week's episode. Uh, Last week was Gaming for Good, and this week is another Gaming for Good kind of idea, and um, unfortunately, since we recorded this, which happens to be uh, some time ago, there had been the Jacksonville uh, incident. Um, For those of you that do know, I do do a Tech Tuesday on uh, Cyber Trauma and Young People Facebook page, um, and I talked about that on there um, because I was just really interested in how social media reacted to it. Um, mainly some of the academics um, in terms of uh, those that conducted themselves online in a way that evidence was very, very uh, bare minimum and how they kind of reacted to other academics really kind of put me back into this place where um, I think I'm really lucky in the, the role that I have which isn't quite fully immersed in the academic world, that I get to speak to lots of other practitioners and I get to speak to you by doing this podcast. Um, So I may speak to somebody about the Jacksonville incident at some point. Um, I may not. I am going with Gaming for Good and today uh, with Adam LaBelle. And we talk about kind of user experience, mental health issues, well, emotional regulation, actually, um, and mental health kind of uh, the direction of games. Um, so hop on onto uh, the um, episode and I hope you really enjoy it. I, I had a blast. And also pop over to www.patreon.com forward slash cyber synapse. Sign up and become one of my Patreons and you will be privy to uh, elite information on there. And also uh, don't forget to rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor or whatever platform you're listening from. Um, this is how other people can find this podcast. We are coming towards the end of season one, uh, and I am going to have a little bit of a break, so we might have one or two more episodes before we end, um, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Bye-bye. Welcome to Cyber Synapse. This week, I'm joined by Adam LaBelle. Adam is currently over in uh, Montreal, and he is a psychology researcher with uh, an interest in mental health around gaming. Uh, I'm not even sure what we're going to talk about today, uh, as we've just said. So, you know, welcome to the podcast, Adam. And why do you do what you do? Thanks. Just a quick clarification. Indeed, it's a psychology background, but my my, my work is technically what we call a games user researcher. And uh, maybe before I explain what I do, I might want to unpack that for some of your your listeners. So to to kind of, I guess, the simple simple way of describing it is... uh, Game designers have an, have an idea of how they want uh, players to experience the things that they've made in the game. And my job is to check with the players based on their experience, how well their experience matches with the design. And when it's matching well, to give designers, well, these are the design aspects of the design that worked in your favor. And when it's not going well, these are the aspects of the design that didn't work in your favor. And, and give them as much, empower them as much as I can to make the design decisions that bring them closer to their intention. Yep. And why do I do that? Because I love video games, I love research, and I love 
like working with people and in very kind of uh, high paced environments. So yeah. all those things are in my job and uh, that's why I do what I do. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, I've, again, the question I was going to ask you has just totally gone skewed off. So I'm going to go back to where we were talking uh, just before we started recording. Um, so user experience is actually really, really important. And I know that l lots of people don't actually understand what it is. So thank you for clarifying that because there is something about understanding that the gaming industry needs to know how people find the game and, and what kind of um, touch-ups they need. Um, because sometimes that's, that's where we end up having uh, rage outs, isn't it? You know, and it's not, mm -hmm. it's not easy to figure out. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So I have a question about children and kind of their user experiences, but I'm going to put that to one side. Um, sure. Do you want to do you want to walk us through your your research career and how you've ended up where you are? Um, sure. So I am. Yeah. I am yeah. I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the hour long one that I gave you before we got on the call. Um, so uh, I started out studying psychology and uh, as a bachelor student uh, in Brooklyn, New York, where I'm from. And uh, I immediately took to the research side of, of, of that. And uh, after spending some time at the University of Amsterdam, I discovered uh, it really cemented the idea of like research psychology being attracted to me and uh, suiting my strengths. So I went to mm -hmm. master's in, in Amsterdam, a research master's, a two-year program where um, I was working in social psychology. So I was studying things about emotions I was always, I guess, interested in social and emotional uh, research. Yeah. Uh, so I did two years of that. I did some research on emotions like shame and humiliation. It's very, very interesting stuff. Like, it was, yeah. was, was really, yeah. And um, I had grown up my whole time playing video games. I was always a, a video game player. Um, and then during the time of my master's, it was something that took a major backseat while I was uh, studying. And, fulfilling my career aspirations to becoming like a, a psychology researcher, getting a PhD. And when trying to find a PhD, I <coughs> learned about uh, somebody in uh, Rabat University in Nijmegen, a city in the Netherlands. And she was, uh, her name is Isabel Granik, and Isabel was looking to start doing research about the benefits of video games for social and emotional development. And this is a, yeah, that was like a, an amazing moment in my life because it was, the moment where I realized it was possible to marry this childhood hobby of mine with my career aspirations. Yeah. And um, when I met Isabel, I discovered not only was you know she trying to bring those two worlds together, but she was trying to do it what, at least in, as far as I can say, was the best way or the right way. Yeah. And um, she, I she, she still works in this area and she has a very good, and even then on an intuitive level, had a very good intuition about how to uh, explore video games as a place for healthy social and emotional development, and then how to use video games as a vehicle for promoting healthy social and emotional development. And along the journey of me doing my PhD with her, uh, we created a network of designers and clinicians that allowed me to get immersed into the worlds of design a little bit, and the worlds of like, yeah. what it's like to be a clinical therapist, which is something I was very divorced from because I was like a researcher in my little research box. Um, and over the course of my PhD, uh, yeah, with, with getting immersed in all those things and also spending some time in Los Angeles where I was in a, uh, I was working out of a master's program that's designed to teach people theme design and video game design. And I experienced some mentorship with another 
yeah, kind of, I guess, visionary person in, in the field, Valentina Gotsis, I basically like uh, came to realize towards the end of my PhD that work that would involve more of the design as part of the research was something that was interesting to me more than just research. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, that's when I discovered I wanted to do what I'm doing now and kind of the last little bridge to, to make it from the academic world after getting my PhD to what I'm doing now within the games industry at Ubisoft was that I spent a year working in Switzerland at the uh, University of Geneva with a woman named Andrea Samson. It's all women are my, my uh, mentor. Uh, yeah, yep. I've had like a career of, of, of women teaching me stuff. Um, but uh, we, we, we spent a year together uh, designing board games to teach children about their emotions. So it was a year where I got to put myself in the shoes of the designer so that I can understand. Uh, and when a researcher is communicating to a designer, what are the designer's, um, well, obligations and what are, their, what are their challenges? And therefore, how do you, how, how, how to communicate with, with people on that side of the aisle? So I spent a year doing that and um, landed up here. Yeah. Uh, oh, see, it wasn't the Cliff Notes version, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, again, head fizz in terms of, um, so what I will do is I'm going to come back to um, like the idea of board games. So uh, for, for listeners and, and viewers of uh, this podcast, I have been talking about gaming uh, for a while in lots of different ways. So I've done interviews with Pat Markey about violent games do not produce violent children. Um, I've talked with Tony Bean about using the therapeutic uh, versions of games and, and so on. Um, so how did you get from board games to gaming games? And, and the reason I'm asking this is because this is the part that I'm really trying to educate people in, uh, in, mm -hmm. in this country. But this is, this is really interesting in terms of uh, why is a board game so different to a, a video game? Uh, and I mean, I don't know whether we're going to start calling them internet games anymore or, or there's just so many different um, labels mm -hmm. for them, isn't there? So mm -hmm. yeah, board, board games and gaming games. Yeah, um, the, the board game project, like the reason why we were working in that space was, was twofold. Well, threefold, I would say. One is uh, the resources available to us, and the second also is my own expertise. And then the third was the actual constraints of the project. So the, the actual goals of the project we were working on, it made perfect sense to do stuff in board games, and I think that's the part that's going to really answer your question. But it was also the case of, um, me not being a video game designer and the fact that in video games you need a lot of uh, technological and technical skills to uh -huh. produce the game. Me not having it and us not having sort of the resources to have programmers on our project was almost kind of like a non-starter for us to, to, to be working in the board game space. But like I said, the goals of our project from the get-go, board games already made a ton of sense. So um, what were the goals of our project, right? The, the mystery yeah, yeah. of so, um, so Andrea was interested in bringing um, games into classrooms that would do anything within the realm of emotion regulation. So for any of your viewers who aren't familiar with that term, emotion regulation refers to anything that we do consciously or unconsciously uh, to influence this, our emotional states. So mm -hmm. it's a very big, broad umbrella term. And of course, we can then think about emotion regulation as have like patterns that are healthier and patterns that are less healthier, generally speaking, and also thinking about how, you know, just like anything, like it's, it's, it's hard to set rules and often the context and the flexibility of the person 
uh, um, the person's emotion regulation skills are kind of be paramount. So the, the idea was basically to try to involve within the education system because in education we teach our kids hard skills and hard knowledge, hard facts, but we don't, we allow sort of the jungle to dictate purely the, 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 the soft skills, so to speak. And we don't really offer that much guidance. And um, so the idea was, okay, we have, a school, we, we have a school context and we want to train people to understand their emotions better and understand, at least empower them to uh, be able to regulate their emotions uh, because they, just by grounding them in a, with a little bit more knowledge about what they are and how they can control them. So that was sort of the mandate of the project. Uh, in bullet points, essentially, it's uh, games for classrooms that deal with emotion regulation. Um, and when we're talking about emotion regulation, and it just seems so obvious to us that you need the face-to-face -face interaction. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, not to say that video games are not a great domain for training of emotion regulation skills. I did work on that in my PhD, and I, I believe in that very strongly. But um, when you're talking about a, a classroom setting and you're talking about some of the types of emotion regulation skills we became very interested in, it was very obvious to us that having a face-to-face -face connection uh, made just the most sense. And that's what you, you know, that's, that's something unique that board games afford us. Um, so that was, uh, that was why we went in that direction. Yeah. I, well, I was just thinking as you were talking, Adam, this is exactly what I spend my time teaching parents with their children is, is to pick up on the, the emotional cues that the child is giving and so on. But also, I think this is where, uh, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of my thinking now, I think this is where some children dysregulate when they're playing a game because maybe they weren't taught these skills beforehand in, in the early years. So in this country, we had something called um, SEAL, which stood for social emotional uh, learning. And it, it's in some schools, um, it seems to have teetered off alongside um, the, the early years uh, support that, that was around. And actually now, this is where I think we're seeing the moral panic, isn't it, about children are not regulating themselves there. Although that's not how it's put in the media. They just say they've got addiction issues and they're, they're you know, depressed children, which... I'm going to frame it the other way around. Actually, this mm -hmm. is this is a whole cohort of children who mm -hmm. haven't been given all of these skills. Mm -hmm. So when they transition to the, the cyberspace, that's where they find the difficulties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I would surmise that's a that's a really good that's a really good hypothesis and way of thinking about it. Yeah, I, I think can't. there's not enough motion education, and it's nice that you mentioned SEL because kind of like the jump off point for me and my project was okay, uh, A, I need to now immerse myself in the world of board games, which the types of interactions in board games are very are, are quite unique compared to video games. And mm. having a video gamer, I hadn't really been exposed to board games that much. So that was one of my first jumping off points in my work. And then the second jumping off point was the SEL world, that is to say, um, the social-emotional learning. Well, what are, what are the um, uh, types of exercises that they try to do with kids in the world of SEL, and why, and which ones work, and why, and that was um, that was essentially my 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 starting point with uh, with with the project, just trying to understand what is a good SEL program and why. In the United States right now, you have something called Ruler, which is I think starting really to take off out of Yale University. Mark Brackett like runs that, so um, I think it's also catching on stateside. Um, 
um, this, this idea. Um, but then inevitably, if I can put myself in your shoes, comes the question of like, why games, right? If there's such a thing as an SEL program, if there's such a thing as a ruler program, and they're out there and there are good ruler programs with good exercises and good social emotional learning programs with good exercises, like why, why go through the effort of making a game? And uh, so yeah, why, why believe in the power of games? Um, and um, it was something that I kind of, from the beginning of the project myself, and of course Andrea, who said the project was whole her idea, mm -hmm. uh, believed in on an intuitive level and in the conversation at a coffee shop, we could say things like, um, um, you know, play is a kind of like a safe, comfortable space that also gives rise more naturalistically to emotions. Play is a space where um, we, um, well, yeah, we can leave it at that. You know, the first, I guess the first way of thinking of it was exactly that. It's children naturally interact in contexts of play. And if we want to uh, arouse emotional experiences and let that interact in, in educational ways and hopefully psychoeducational ways, then of course play is going to be better than like a traditional kind of looking homework assignment. That was the mm -hmm. jumping off point for, for us uh, on an intuitive level. So how, how do you, um, yeah, or how, what, let me go back one step. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm rushing. Um, I'm just thinking about, so how, how do we as, as um, researchers, as practitioners, kind of get this message out that not all of these games are, are bad for mental health. So I've got, um, I've got quite a lot of people that tend to say, you know, yeah, but surely games have an impact on mental health. And, and it's trying to explain to people, actually, there are ways of children being able to engage in these. Um, and as mm -hmm. I said, when I was talking with Tony Bean, it's, it, that's what we do here. And I think he said he sometimes gets his, uh, what did he say he'd got? I don't know if he said he'd got a Nintendo, no, it wasn't a Nintendo DS. It might have been, uh, it was an old console anyway. And he said, and he gets it out just so the children can learn um, uh, basically tolerance of their own emotions. And, and, and this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I do with the children. And, uh, mm -hmm. and play as a, um, a therapy is actually what I engage in because it's how children can talk in metaphor. They can be uh, once removed from the actual impact of what it is mm -hmm. they're talking about, particularly because mm -hmm. I work a lot with trauma. And quite often the computer game is enough to distract them slightly while we're talking about something else. So I actually have educational games around um, uh, nervous system regulation. So I've got heart rate variability software and um, games like that. So that these computer games that we're talking about aren't always um, the ones that you'll find on the Xbox or the PS4. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's mm -hmm. pretty much, they are fairly simple and there is uh, an outcome to it. So I'm, I'm just thinking about so what, what do you actually do in terms of the designing or working with, because um, you mentioned it earlier and I did say I'd bring it in, uh, that you're yeah. at Ubisoft. That's so, right. Yeah. So do you, want, do you want to talk a little bit more about what you do, as long as it's obviously not embargoed and you're not, you're not breaking any... Um... Yeah, I, I won't. Uh, yeah, I won't. I, 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 th thanks for that. And I won't... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say what I, what's, what's comfortable and what's, what's fair. Um, so the thing with my work at Ubisoft is it's, it's no longer you know, um, really in, in this area that we're talking about with, with, with games for mental health. Uh, it's, it's really limited to what I was saying before, empowering our designers. So um, again, yeah, I'm gonna be kind of repeating what I was saying before, but basically like designers have an idea of how 
a system or a level or a character or a menu or anything inside their video game. How they have an intention of how players are supposed to experience it. And I'm helping them figure out what part of their design works and what doesn't work and why so that they can better their systems. And with video games and games in general, and this is something I encountered when I was doing design work in this games for mental health space, this games for good space, uh, when I was doing the board game stuff, um, like one of the big challenges is, is like, well, when you design a game, you're trying to design like uh, an environment of generally speaking, freedom and exploration. You you empower your, your user to do a lot of things. It's not like you're designing a website where there's like only so many places on the screen that you can click, or there's only so many ways that you can scroll down the website. It's like the, 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 the breadth of interactivity in video games is so wide, and also in board games, and in, in games in general, is so wide that it's, well, it's a huge challenge because again, a designer has like an intended general idea of how players use their system, but there are so many other ways that players can go to use their system and and, and interpret things. Uh, and so it's about finding that like important line between, um, yeah, making. about the ways in which like yeah the design of video games and board games are so open-ended and like they give the user so much freedom that like it becomes very difficult to uh uh yeah to to design for both allowing the player to do whatever they want while also following this intended path and um Marian Tina Gotsis who like I said those is a mentor of mine who I was working with in Los Angeles during my PhD she said something like game design is about creating or biasing in a system, so creating a system or biasing an existing system to promote uh, behavior in a target population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how how academic? Yeah, <laughs> I'm just so can we can it we? Un- so much as a as a as like a fledgling designer, it helped me so much. It's like oh okay, yeah. I'm creating a system where I'm where I'm playing around with the system for a target behavior. Keep your eye on the prize. Like, what do you want your user to be doing? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, um, I, I love when I hear things operationalized because um, it, it's t- just t- vague terminology in this in this industry at the moment drives me absolutely crackers. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I like it when people say, this is what we're doing. This is the end result. Here we are. Um, it's almost like talking in E-Prime. Um, so I think for, for um, listeners, what I might say is, actually, what you're trying to do is get people to engage in a particular behavior through, through the intentions of the game. And the way you do that is pretty much like a, a rat in a maze. You, you steer them in a particular direction by creating um, menus and then kind of, I'm just thinking the types of games... Um, it's, it's almost like somebody gives the rules at the beginning for like for snap. So, so quite often I, I sit with children and we might play connect Four, snap, something like that. And mm-hmm. what I do is I let them tell me what rules they think mm-hmm. are, are, exist. And mm-hmm. that, that gives me an understanding about where they are cognitively, where they are um, a kind of their family script as well, you know, about who wins and who doesn't and what happens when people win. So I'm just thinking about how, yeah, how do you actually steer people then? Yeah, it's uh, it's very challenging. <laughs> mm. um, um, because the, 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 
if I can articulate your point, I think just 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 a half a step further. It's 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 not just about step like you know pushing them to do a certain behavior, but it's it's also maintaining while maintaining the what I would call the sanctity of play, right? The 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 the, the, mm. the sense of play. It's a very fragile, delicate thing. Um, children know what play looks and feels like and when when you're doing something with them which is education disguised in play and it, without being true to the philosophy of play they know instinctively oh, immediately. yeah amazing bullshit detectors um, when it comes to that i mean this is their domain children yeah. are the masters of the world of play and um you know we should all be so lucky to retain that mastery and uh, only hone that mastery through the course of our entire lives. Um, so, um, so it, it, you have to also, to answer your question, you have to also um, understand what makes play play, and not just yeah. what makes somebody do X Y Z. Right? You can get you can get somebody to do X Y Z if you just give them the right type of reward. But to get them to discover for themselves that X Y Z is a good thing within the context of a freedom of choices, all which seem appealing and fun and interesting, that's a whole other order. Um, so what, it, like our process, and I, I, I don't know if I can have a stamp on this being the best process, but our, our process was to immerse ourselves in the world of games and to try to understand what makes this game fun and what makes this game uh what behaviors is this game or what types of thinking is this game promoting as a means of success in the game? And yeah. then on the other side, looking at the, at the SEL stuff and saying, okay, what makes this skill important and what, what makes this exercise worthwhile for this skill? And we just try to immerse ourselves in those spaces as much as we can to yeah. be able yeah. to cross tabulate where do they meet in the closest way possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking I wish we could do that with the e-safety stuff because the e-safety games that get developed, are, they're, they're blatantly obvious to the children and they'll go, I, I'm not playing that, Kath. I'm not playing right. that because that's about give you the standard uh, standard answers, you know, the socially desirable ones. That's what you want me to say. Tap, tap, tap. And right. there is, yeah, there is something about the word fun. So uh, I'm, I, oh. I've trained in something called transactional analysis and I always talk about the, the child ego state and it's about staying in that child ego state that helps you do the the free the free play because mm -hmm. that's what that's where learning happens and i'm not going to go down the the boring route of chatting about academia but this there's plenty of um uh, research to actually show how and why children do what they do in terms of play and mm -hmm. i think when, when you were talking um, one of my friends is a gamer. Um, he's uh, 50 years of age and we regularly chat and he, he'll quite often say, I have Peter Pan syndrome. I haven't grown up yet. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's a lovely way to look at that's, that's actually how, how we keep doing this, isn't it? This is how we meet in the middle about mm -hmm. what makes a game fun. You have mm -hmm. to understand what fun is. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm, I'm just thinking about the kind of work that I do when I'm with uh, traumatized children, there's a lot of fun been taken out of their lives. So this is one of the reasons why I bring computer games back into the therapy room, because mm -hmm. for 50 minutes, they have fun. They get to play mm -hmm. a game. And, uh, and it's really curious, actually, watching mm -hmm. how each child plays the game. 
So some of them, some of them try to be um, score the highest points. Some of them will go off a bit like a sandbox. They'll go off and explore. And mm -hmm. it's, I'm just thinking about, I've probably got 400 questions for you and, and it's, uh, yeah. So what, when you are designing these games and thinking about the user experience, mm -hmm. do you actually work with children and get kind of their feedback in terms of what, what they consider fun? Yeah, we needed to. So um, th that was also an essential part of the project. So when <coughs> I came into the University of Geneva to, to make those games, uh, um, it was also with the understanding from day one that the, the university had a relationship with a, with a nearby school that was very open to collaborating with us. Um, and so our design process involved, like I said, immersing ourselves in as many games as possible to understand what thoughts and behaviors are they promoting as like a means of having fun and being successful in the game? What are the existing skills that are going on? And then to bring all of that together, uh, we would build prototypes on a basically a weekly basis. We would just have an idea. Let's build it as small and simple as possible. Another reason why board games are great because you can generally just scribble things down on some pieces of paper and play a prototype very quickly. Yeah. And once we were getting somewhere where we felt like, okay, we have a little bit of a prototype, we would bring that into a classroom of children who were registered with us for, I think it was every week. Every week we would go in for an after-school program and play games with the kids. And early, in, early on in the project, before we had prototypes that we were confident with, we brought in games that we, we brought in existing games and saw, okay, how, is, uh, how are these children that are in our target age range, is like kind of nine to 11 years old age range, how are they interacting with these games? And what makes these games fun for them? And, and just spending time with them. And then eventually we were able to bring in our own prototypes to see, okay, uh, are they interacting with our games in a very similar way of what we've been seeing with these off the shelf? I mean, like the things we were bringing into the classroom were pretty much the best of class games that are out in the board game market right now or right then. So it's like, okay, are we stacking up to this? And, and are we all, and while also seeing, are we also cultivating the types of behaviors that we're doing? So uh, you absolutely need to, uh, uh, at least uh, from, from my perspective, it was essential for us to involve our users in our design process as early on as possible. Mm. I think they call it user-centered design. Um, um, yeah, I was when when you first start, when we first started talking actually at the beginning of the podcast and you'd said user experience and I thought actually it reminded me of um, was it Jamie Madigan when he was talking to uh, oh who was he talking to and they were on about user experience and he said what is it what it? and it was like how do you define this this user experience what is it and again it's that nebulous thing in in cyberspace that nobody can put put a de definitive answer to um, I'm I'm quite interested in when once you've got these games how do you find um and i'm not going to say selling them but how do you find that they're taking them out into the public without the moral panic that you know we've been we're constantly watching on uh, social media mm. how, do, how do you find the public the parents take take this game that would be a great question for the person i was working with andrea because i i left the that i left the project just at the point where we had built things that we thought were very strong, like not, I don't want to say prototypes. I think we were further than just a, a prototype. We had, we had what were pretty much fully cooked games just that hadn't yet been, uh, you know, dolled up and prayed up and, and like the visual, a lot of the visual aesthetic and some of the kinks of the, the game hadn't yet quite been worked out, but the, the game was there. 
Um, but uh, she has spent, uh, together with the master students that we were working together with, uh, about the last year doing some like research on it initially, bringing it into school, seeing, seeing, seeing how they were doing. So that would be something that like, honestly, shame on me for not following up with her as, as much as I should have been, uh, to like understand like, okay, where, where, where are these designs at and are they gonna like see the light of day? Um, I think that um, it's a great question because the types of things that we were making, again, these are games mm-hmm. that are the spirit of play that was a precondition about all the stuff that we made um, that are also educational slash psychoeducational. So selling it becomes a question of like, you kind of have two stakeholders in this. You have the schools and the parents who want to know that it's educational and that it works. And you have the kids who are like, yeah, don't tell me that you're trying to fix me and make me better. Just tell me you're giving me something fun. So navigating that minefield is not something that I had yet to engage with, so I don't really have a great answer to your question. Uh, yeah, well, to be perfect, you've summed it up beautifully there in terms of the agenda of the parent versus the agenda of the child, and that—that's generally where I end up, kind of going. Actually, this isn't about <laughs> this isn't about your agenda to the parent. Yeah. It has to be educational, Kath. I I do hope you're not playing computer games and just wasting your time. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, and what what are you up to? Yeah, what are you up to now? And and what are your you know where are you in research plans? Anything that you're doing at the moment? So yeah, I'm trying to become the best games user researcher I can be. So uh, the world of games user research is vast in terms of the different types of user experiences that uh, game designers want tested, and in terms of the variety of methodologies that can be used, uh, tweaked, created to answer those questions mm. and uh, I'm just learning how to be the, like I said, the best user researcher I can be, uh, ramping up the best I can um, and uh, providing my designers the, the, the best feedback I possibly can for their designs. Yeah. Okay. Is, uh, I'm just thinking, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you, you would have liked to have been asked? I think, I think we did a pretty good job covering everything. Um, um, I think for your users, like if for anybody that was really interested in any of these conversations, um, really look into the work of my PhD mentor, Isabella Granick. She does something in the Netherlands called the GEM Lab, and that's Games for Emotional and Mental Health, G-E-M-H. Uh, like I said, Marangatina Gotsis, she works out of uh, USC in, uh, in Southern California, in Los Angeles. She does great work about not necessarily just games, but like anything that's well, therapeutic, let's call them therapeutic experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, while, while certainly tapping into the power of games and play. Um, and then, of course, that, yeah, Andrea Sampson, who I work together with. Um, another person who was very influential um, is uh, somebody also at USC, somebody named Jeff Watson. And he, uh, he came in and he did a workshop with us uh, during my PhD. And he stamped into my brain the insistence that play slash a game is by definition voluntary. And when he, when he gave that workshop and that became kind of like a recurring theme as we were developing games for, for the workshop. And he was so, um, he was so kind of like strong and kind of passionate about this idea. Like the, the academic in me felt like very resistant to it. Like why do you make such like an ironclad rule it was coming across to me but it stuck with me because 
<clears throat> he's right, at least in my opinion. He's right. If it's not voluntary, if it doesn't feel like this is an activity that I want to be doing, it might be fun. It might be enjoyable. It might be all sorts of things, but it's not play. Don't lie to yourself about that. Yeah. And uh, look into his work. He's, he's a smart guy. Uh, that, that one sounds really interesting, actually, because there's something about um, children who are, and I'm going to do, do the inverted comma thing, uh, brought to therapy to be fixed. And, yeah. and that, that is the difference between when I work with adults is quite often mm -hmm. the adults bring themselves. And for children, they're, they're here. So quite often, that's why I give them, and I'm, I'm going to go with the word choice, because you talked about this earlier in terms of how, how you can choose to do something mm -hmm. in a game. And it's, mm -hmm. why, it's why I say here, what would you like to do? And we have a wander around the building, and they can see, I don't know, for example, the sand tray, the toys, the puppets, the paint. And then, obviously, we go upstairs. There's the big bodywork room, and there's the consoles. Uh, generally, generally, um, and I, I find quite often as well as a gender uh, difference that it tends to be the young, the young boys that are like, oh, can I go on that path? What, what games have you got? What games have you got? Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's actually what we do, whereas the girls tend to do more creative painting and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, so there's something, I don't know if that will be of interest to anybody making games, but there does tend to be quite a gender difference in how the children engage with stuff. Um, yeah. That, that being said, and certainly like research does like come to like uh, bring to bear very much what you were saying about gender differences in games and when uh, in game in types of game preferences. And I did when I was doing my PhD, I did I did work where we were like really investigating what games children all across the Netherlands were playing, and we saw gen like gender differences and even within the video game space that yeah. that align very much with what you're saying. But I still think that being said. Um, there are, there is, I think, a lot more of an overlap in what boys and girls both find fun and engaging. That's that's easy to overlook. So yes, the, the boys might be more into like more aggressive and competitive experiences than girls, and girls might be a little bit more interested in uh, like sort of, um, well, essentially like the kind of like the digital version of a, of a dollhouse or the digital version of playing house in like a role playing type of scenario than boys. Like yeah. something that we observed uh, with, with the kids we worked with in, in, when I was doing my research in Holland. But what I also observed is that like when you have a game mechanic, which is interesting for, 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 for that, that, that's intuitively interesting for somebody, it doesn't matter their gender. So for example, the thing that we saw that stuck out very strongly and we tried to like bring it to bear in, in, our, in, in our designs, the thing that was very strong, it didn't matter about gender was for kids in our age range of nine to 11, the sort of the mechanic of what's behind the corner, what's the next thing that's going to happen? And is uh -huh. it gonna be good or is it gonna be bad? Every, all the kids tap into that. And it, it, for, for kids within that age range, like the idea of it, if, if that sort of game was being played on something that was like three or four turns in the future, it didn't resonate as much because kids are so much more, especially in that age range, are so much more in the moment. They're not thinking so far down the line. But when it's that stack of cards and, you know, 80% of the cards are good, but 20% of them are bad, like they're gonna have a negative consequence and they understand the negative consequence, just the, 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 the feeling of going to flip the card from the deck or you know, you're know you playing Jenga and you're taking off that one little yeah. piece, that feeling resonates with everybody regardless of gender. And I'm confident that there are many other mechanics and like ways that games are designed that are 
you know, trans, you know, trans, transgender, you know, like that, that, are, that, that, that are not, are not, you know, gender specifically interesting. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, for me, that's, um, you're, you're talking about curiosity and a brilliant mm -hmm. example of emotional regulation. So quite uh, for, for example, on gender, I will, I will make noises, you know, when I'm with the child and I'll go, oh, oh, and, and it's all about, actually, this is about expectations. Um, so it's, you, you have like a, a neural expectation, but you also have this cognitive expectation and the marrying of them together is, it's wonderful to actually get children to play kind of through that process and then ask them afterwards, you know, how was that? What was, ex what was it? And you'll find exciting, fun, uh, all the words that you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm so excited about actually this this just cements so so much for me what I'm doing as a therapist actually is about working with these children and actually that that idea of just around the corner what you did what you did do then was you sparked off um, I've actually said to Tony I'm gonna speak to him again at some point about flow because I'm really interested in um, children in flow when mm -hmm. they're using games because that mm -hmm. is in the here and now um, mm -hmm. And I found myself doodling on the whiteboard the other week about where it was in terms of uh, nervous system regulation, where it is in terms of cognitive. And I think that's one of the things that um, might be another one of <laughs> might be another one of my projects that I'm, I'm going to look at. But mm -hmm. that, that's going to be really interesting in terms of where we are in, in gaming, because I know that um, there is a company at the moment who's looking at the flow uh, with gamers, but they're doing it with adults by the sound of it, not children. So. Oh. I'm, like I'm a, hoping like a site like an educational psychoeducational company or a, or a commercial uh, no no it's a gaming it's a gaming company okay. um uh and uh i i want to get i want to get in touch with it which is why i'm not saying the name at the minute um i'm going to yeah. try and get in touch with them because i'm really interested in how are they measuring it because mm -hmm. i'd like to be able to do it with the with the kids here and ask them questions and well, build up a bank of information when you find out i'll be curious too <laughs> yeah well i'll tell you after i'll tell you after the podcast <laughs> right i'm and and talking of which uh, we've been going for about an hour so i did yep so we wow. with, with the little blip in the middle but that's okay because i paused it and then we started again okay well yeah sorry again about that and uh, yeah it wouldn't be right to, to end this call without me saying i really think you're doing amazing work and when i was in the, the netherlands and i was uh you know an advocate for getting games implemented more in therapy you know, it wasn't something that I got to push hard enough on, and or, or and it's just great for me to see people like you out there involving games and therapy, involving video games and therapy. So I think you're doing great work. It's a real pleasure to. Oh, thank spoke. you, thank you. Um, I I think it's just so that I get to play all day. Yeah. <laughs> I, there is there is a method. Yeah, I have an ulterior motive, and it's so that when I'm not on the games console or messing about at home, I'm doing something here. No, actually, I'm I'm being really good at the moment and doing uh, uh, much more writing. Okay. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to say? And what? Um, I will obviously put your uh, Twitter handle in the show notes if that's okay with you, so that people can contact yeah, you. Um, obviously, you if they... YouTube channel as well. Why not? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll stick that one in. Um, yeah, because I think what was the what was the one that I quite liked was when you did your talk on uh, fact, fiction, or myth, wasn't it? Oh yeah, that yeah, that one's fun. that one's a nice one. I think that that will help people because you do you do talk about kind of the myths that we have around gaming, and and that's actually what I'm trying to do with this set of episodes mm -hmm. is kind of take out the myths behind. You know, games are not these horrid things. They they have a really good motive. 
Well, shameless self-plug, I think that if people want to like read about that a little bit more, um, my PhD thesis is called Game On, and I love showing the book because the art is so fantastic. It it's, is, it's, isn't it? Yes. It's. Yeah, I had the, somebody named David Nash did it for me. Anyway, um, the second chapter of this book is a review that I wrote together with Isabel and my other PhD supervisor, Rutger, and the, it's called The Benefits of Playing Video Games. And it's all about sort of laying out from a traditional psychology standpoint and also based off of sort of like <clears> the, it's a few years old now, but at the time sort of like all the research that was done on video games until then about, okay, let's make a case for the benefits of video games. And mm. it's a very, it's, it's an academic article, but I assure you it's very readable. It's, it's, it's very, I think it's very compelling. All thanks mostly to Isabel who did most of the writing on it. And um, yeah, it's in here. You can find this on my Twitter page, etc. Blah blah blah. But it's called "The Benefits of Playing Video Games," and it's the second chapter of this PhD thesis, which I wrote. And um, it's a great. If people are interested in the topic and want to immerse themselves in the kind of the starting point of the research, it's a. It really is a great review paper. So check it out. Well, I, I think I will be asking you for a copy of that then, because um, anything I can get my hands on at the moment, um, because, and this is what I was saying earlier, a lot of it tends to be out in the, the um, US at the moment for a lot of this research. So at the moment, I'm scrabbling around and asking and begging people. <laughs> so well, it's, it's, it's all online. I can send you a link. Oh, fabulous. That would be, oh, that's brilliant. I'll go and get some more ink. When, when we've done here, I'm off to the shop to go and get some ink so I can print it out. Okay. Right. Thank you ever so much for taking the time for this, Adam. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Best of luck.